This morning we are returning to our study through the Gospel according to Luke. Uh, We've looked at some other passages of Scripture over the Christmas New Year season and it's time to get back to our regular Bible series. We're in the final section of chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, and I'd like to begin this morning by reading those verses, and then we'll we'll pray and commit our time of preaching to the Lord. So please, if you would, follow along as I read the Word of God. Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 31. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out, and depart thence. For Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets, and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, thank you for our service of worship this morning. Thank you that we've been able to sing together and pray together. We trust that our worship has been acceptable in your sight. We ask now that you would be very gracious and merciful to us, that by the work of your Holy Spirit you would help us to understand the text of Scripture before us. We ask that you would give us a fresh view of your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we dearly love. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Every day in our country, around 440 people die. And every death is significant. Uh, There is a circle of family and friends who experience feelings of loss and grief. But there are some deaths that have an impact beyond that circle of family and friends. There are some deaths that leave all of us feeling sad and upset, even though we didn't know the person who passed away. Uh, This is because some deaths are especially tragic. And sadly, we've had an example of that in the news this week. It seems as though the life of a young girl was taken and uh, a terrible crime was committed. Uh, The news reports about that certainly affected me. But sometimes it's because a person's death represents an attack on their role in society, if I can put it that way. I'm thinking particularly of when a police officer is killed in the line of duty. Uh, That affects all of us. Because we, we value what police officers do. They keep us safe. They come to our aid when we need help. It's the same feeling we get when we hear of a paramedic being attacked or a a nurse in an emergency room. I don't quite know how to put this into words, but there are some deaths, some murders, that make a statement. 
that do violence to more than just the person and their family. They represent an attack on society and its institutions. And this is recognised in the law. For example, there is a mandatory life sentence in New South Wales for someone who intentionally murders a police officer. Uh, the law recognises that that is a particularly heinous crime. Another example of this phenomenon is the murder of a member of parliament because they are a member of parliament. Uh, sadly this has happened twice in the United Kingdom in the last five years. Uh, Joe Cox, a female MP, was shot and stabbed to death in June of 2016. And another MP, Sir David Amos, was killed in similar fashion in October of 2021. Thankfully, uh, this has only happened uh, once in our nation's history. That was back in 1994 when John Newman was killed. At the time he was the member for Cabramatta in the New South Wales Parliament. When an MP is targeted in this way, it is more than just the murder of an individual. It is an attack on our form of government and on our way of life. I mention all of this because I don't want us to miss the significance of what Jesus said in verse 34, because I think we can. I mean, it's a familiar verse, and I'm sure many of us have heard sermons on it before. Think about it. What did it mean to kill a prophet? Now, every death is significant, every murder is wicked, but to murder a man because he was a prophet because he brought a message from God, what did that say? What kind of a statement did that make? I put it to you that murdering prophets represented a whole other level of evil and rebellion. To murder a prophet was to utterly repudiate and reject the Lord and what the Lord wanted for his chosen people. In our last sermon in this series, we considered verses 31 to 33. We saw how Herod was worried about Jesus' influence, and we saw how Jesus wasn't worried about Herod's threats. And Jesus replied to those who warned him about Herod's intentions that he was going to keep on doing what he was doing, keep on travelling through Herod's kingdom, the region of Galilee, performing miracles and ministering to the people. He knew his time had not yet come. He knew he wasn't going to die in Galilee, but in Jerusalem. For Jerusalem was where prophets went to die. That's what Israel's history suggested. Verse 33, Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. And then in verses 34 and 35, we have Jesus' lamentation over Jerusalem, which we come to today. Now, these words are also recorded in Matthew chapter 23. Now just by way of context, Matthew records Jesus saying this at a different point in his ministry. And so it may be that Jesus lamented over Jerusalem on two occasions. Here in Luke chapter 13 while he was in Galilee and then again in Matthew chapter 23 when he was in Jerusalem during Passion Week. Or it may be that as Luke was writing his history of Jesus' life, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he believed that this was a good place to put Jesus' words into the narrative. This was a natural place, given that Jesus had just talked about prophets being killed in Jerusalem. It doesn't really matter which it was, for what it's worth, I think this was Luke being a wise and thoughtful editor. 
It was appropriate thematically to put Jesus' words into his account at this point, even though Jesus said them later on chronologically. Now what I'm going to do this morning is simply take us through verse 34. We'll get to verse 35 in our next sermon. As you can see in the outline that went out with the order of worship, I've divided the text into four parts. And so without any further introduction, let's think about what Jesus was saying. The verse begins with the words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets. We can hear the sadness in Jesus' voice, can't we? It was there in the repetition of the city's name, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. One author compares the depth of feeling to what David said when he learned that his son Absalom had been killed. 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 33. O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. The repetition was the outflow of an intense grief. A deep sorrow in David's heart over the loss of his beloved son. And we see the same thing here. A similar grief in Jesus' heart as he thought about Jerusalem. It was a city that had killed the prophets. That was its reputation. It was known for murdering God's messengers more than listening to them. I thought it would be worthwhile to show you what Jesus was talking about. To show you how Jerusalem earned this reputation, we won't look at all of these references. You can look them up at home if you wish. The Old Testament records instances where prophets were killed by the inhabitants of Jerusalem. There was the murder of Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 20 through 22. Now, technically, Zechariah was a priest. But in Luke chapter 11, verse 51, Jesus includes him in the lineage of murdered prophets. And that's fitting because he was murdered, stoned to death in the court of the temple at the instigation of the king for preaching the word of the Lord. Another example is the death of the prophet Uriah during the days of Jeremiah. And I will read the account of his murder. You can turn over to Jeremiah chapter 26 or just listen as I read. Jeremiah chapter 26 beginning at verse 20. It says, And there was also a man that prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah the son of Shemaiah of Kirjath-Jerim, who prophesied against this city and against this land according to all the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim the king with all his mighty men and all the princes heard his words... The king sought to put him to death, but when Uriah heard it, he was afraid and fled and went into Egypt. And Jehoiakim the king sent men into Egypt, namely Elnathan the son of Akbor, and certain men with him into Egypt. And they fetched forth Uriah out of Egypt and brought him unto Jehoiakim the king, who slew him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. Here we see a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord. A man who brought the same message that Jeremiah brought and he was threatened, hunted down, captured and murdered by the king. The king who sat on David's throne in Jerusalem. These are the two prophets who are mentioned by name in the Old Testament who died at the hands of the citizens of Jerusalem. But there were certainly others. According to tradition, the prophet Isaiah was violently murdered. This tradition comes to us via the 2nd century Christian apologist Justin Martyr. He mentions it in his famous dialogue with Trypho. 
And it's possible that the author to the Hebrews also refers to it in chapter 11. According to this tradition, Isaiah was killed by being sawn in half. It's rather gruesome. And the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11 refers to men and women who were sawn asunder for their faith. Perhaps a reference to Isaiah. It's also possible, even likely, that many prophets perished at the hand of King Manasseh. It says in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 16, Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Writing about this, the first century historian Josephus says, He, that is Manasseh, spared not even the prophets, some of whom he slaughtered daily, so that Jerusalem ran with blood. So we have all of these examples of prophets who died in or around Jerusalem, prophets who were killed by those who lived in Jerusalem, but to these we can add dozens if not hundreds of other nameless prophets who were put to death. There is a sense in which Jerusalem represents the whole nation. It it represents the attitude of God's people in general towards the prophets. There were those who were hunted down and killed by Ahab and Jezebel. Their policy towards the prophets of the Lord is infamous. We read about it in 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 4 and 13 and in chapter 19 verses 10 and 14. There were those mentioned by Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 30. In vain have I smitten your children, they receive no correction. Your own sword hath devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. There were those mentioned by Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 26. Nevertheless they were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs and slew thy prophets which testified against them to turn them to thee. And they wrought great provocations. And then finally Stephen in his sermon in Acts chapter 7 mentions this stain on Israel's history. Acts chapter 7 verse 52 Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? Isn't that an interesting way to put it? (laughs) Which ones didn't you kill? And they have slain them which showed thee before the coming of the just one. This is what Jesus was talking about in our text. The awful treatment of God's messengers over the centuries. And he went on to give more detail. Notice the next part of the verse. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. Stoning was the most common form of capital punishment under the Mosaic law. And there are examples in the Old Testament where it was carried out. The most notable of which is that of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. Among other crimes, stoning was the punishment for blasphemy and apostasy. Now this doesn't mean that in every case the prophets who were killed by stoning were accused of blasphemy, but I'm sure in some cases it did happen that way. Though not a prophet, this was how the execution of Naboth was procured. He was accused of committing blasphemy. And I'm sure there were instances where true prophets were accused of being false prophets and were stoned to death as per the law. But what Jesus is really saying here is that Jerusalem treated the prophets like criminals, like the scum of the earth. They treated those who were sent to them by God as if they were the worst of the worst. 
And it's here I want to circle back to where I began and reflect for a moment on how wicked this was. When the king and the citizens of Jerusalem killed a prophet, what were they doing? What, what, what message were they communicating? The murder of a prophet was an expression of furious antagonism towards the Lord and his word. People who simply don't care about what God has to say don't do this kind of thing. (laughs) This was more than just disinterest or disregard for the Lord. This was rage. Rage against God. We don't want to hear what you have to say to us. We don't want you telling us that what we're doing is wrong and we feel so strongly about this that we're going to kill your messengers. To kill a prophet was to try to get rid of God, to reject him, to repudiate him. It was perhaps the single greatest act of rebellion that God's people could commit. And they did it over and over and over again. And I think that makes what Jesus went on to say rather remarkable. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings. I don't think the picture Jesus employs needs too much explanation. I think we can see in our mind's eye a hen gathering her chicks under her Wings. I know many of you have chickens. Ah. It's an image that speaks of protection. The hen is keeping her little ones safe from danger. Perhaps a, a hawk circling in the sky or some other predator in the, in the vicinity. A, a fox or a carpet snake. Or, or there is a storm or a fire. And she is sheltering her children from that. It's also a picture that speaks of closeness, doesn't it? and warmth and love. The hen cares for her chicks. Now this is imagery drawn straight from the Old Testament. This picture was used on a number of occasions to speak of the Lord's care for his people. And I've put some of those verses in the outline. Psalm 17 verse 8. David says, Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. Psalm 36 verse 7, How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. Psalm 57 verse 1, Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. What a beautiful verse. Psalm 91 verse 4, He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. Jesus was saying here in our text in Luke chapter 13 that this is what he wanted to do. This is who he wanted to be to the men and women of Jerusalem. The one who protected them. The one to whom they resorted and trusted in. The one in whom they found safety and care and love. He wanted to be their gentle saviour. I wonder if Jesus was saying more than this. Notice he says, How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings? In other words, Jesus was saying, I've wanted to do this often. 
Now sure, Jesus was talking about his earthly ministry. No doubt there were many times during those three years when he felt this deep love for his own kin and countrymen and this desire to gather them to himself and protect them and save them. I'm reminded of those occasions in the Gospels when we're told that Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw the multitudes. But I wonder if Jesus wasn't just thinking about his present circumstances but about all of Israel's history. Jesus was the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the Lord of the Old Testament, Yahweh. And as the Lord, this was his desire for the nation that he had chosen, that he had entered into a covenant with. From the very beginning of Israel's existence, he had wanted to protect them and nurture them. He'd wanted to walk with them in close fellowship and that's why he had sent them prophets. It was for this very purpose, to, as it were, bring those precious, vulnerable little chicks to himself, to gather them under his wings, to bring them to the place of safety, to the place where they would experience his blessing. And even though the nation would often kill his prophet, his concern for them remained. His desire for them did not change, and so he would send them another prophet, and then another, and then another Though they rejected him, though they repudiated him, time after time after time, yet this was his heart towards them. This is the steadfast love of the Lord. We see it all through the Old Testament. And we see it here in the heart of Jesus. But the great tragedy of this whole story is seen in the last part of our verse. It's so very, very sad. And this is why Jesus lamented. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. And ye would not. This is the Greek word thelo. It refers to the will. It's the same word that is used of Jesus in this verse. Jesus was willing, but the people of Jerusalem were not willing. Aside from a handful of individuals, the nation of Israel did not want the salvation, the protection, the nourishment, the love that the Lord Jesus wanted to give them. And we know that Jesus would shortly be yet another murdered prophet. Jerusalem would do to him what he'd had done to countless others. What Jesus said at the end of this verse was true of Israel throughout its history. This was the prevailing pattern. Now yes, there were brief seasons of faithfulness and blessing, but they were the exception. Listen if you would to these verses from the Old Testament. I've put them in the outline again and I could have chosen many more. Psalm 81 verses 10 and 11. I am the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. For my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would none of me. That sounds a lot like our verse, doesn't it? The, the Lord says to his people, open your mouth and I will feed you, I will fill you to the brim, I will satisfy you completely. But Israel would none of me. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 15, For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall ye be saved, in quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. 
and ye would not. The rest, salvation, strength, but ye would not. Jeremiah chapter 7 verses 23 and 24, But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people, and walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. There's the hen wanting to provide shelter and nourishment for her chicks. But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. Jerusalem did not want its Saviour. Jerusalem did not want its Lord and that grieved Jesus and his grief was made even greater because he knew what the consequences would be. Because the people would not receive his salvation, they would experience his absence and his judgment. That's what the next verse is about. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. What an awful picture. We'll look at that next week. But for today, as we ponder these words of our Lord Jesus, there are two points that I want to draw to your attention. And then we'll be done. Number one. Jesus' lamentation over Jerusalem reveals his deep love for sinners and his willingness to save them. Jesus' lamentation over Jerusalem reveals his deep love for sinners and his willingness to save them. If we were in Jesus' position, with all of Israel's history in view, perhaps we would have said something like this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often have I wanted to tear you apart like a ravenous lion? How often have I wanted to pour out my anger upon you for your rebellion, for how you have treated me with contempt? But our Lord didn't say that, did he? That's not the picture he used. Not a ravenous lion, but a gentle hen. In his expository thoughts on the Gospels, J.C. Ryle says this about our text. Let us learn from these verses how great is the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ towards sinners. We see this brought out in a most forcible manner by our Lord's language about Jerusalem. He knew well the wickedness of that city. He knew what crimes had been committed there in times past. He knew what was coming on himself at the time of his crucifixion. Yet even to Jerusalem, he says, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus loves sinners, brothers and sisters. Jesus loves sinners. Even the very worst of sinners, even those who have transgressed in the most grievous manner like Jerusalem did. He loves sinners and he wants to save them. To save them from their sins and from what their sins have earned. He wants to save them from judgment and from hell. He wants to save them from the bitterness and the sorrow that inevitably comes from a life lived apart from God. That's why he went to Jerusalem and to his death. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he shed his blood. That's why he gave up his life. It was so that he might save sinners by dying in their place. 
It was so that he might offer forgiveness and everlasting life to all who will receive it. But that brings us to the second point that I want to bring to your attention. Jesus' lamentation over Jerusalem reveals his deep love for sinners and his willingness to save them. But it also reminds us of the sinner's responsibility to receive his salvation. It's there in those last few words of verse 34, those very sad words. And ye would not. Jesus was willing, but Jerusalem wasn't. And so Jerusalem was not saved. The nation of Israel fell under the judgment of God. Jesus wants to save sinners, but sinners must be willing to receive his salvation and to receive it according to the terms upon which he offers it. And thankfully his terms are not burdensome at all. We receive his salvation by repentance and faith. That is, by acknowledging our sin and our inability to save ourselves and then trusting in Jesus and what he accomplished for us by his life, death and resurrection. Whatever we might believe about the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of election, we must never forget that the Bible clearly sets forth the reality of human responsibility. That each one of us is responsible for what we choose, whether to believe in Jesus and thereby receive his salvation, or to reject the Lord Jesus and so receive the judgment we deserve for our sins. Going back to J.C. Ryle for a moment, again commenting on our text, he said this, Our salvation is holy of God, let that never be forgotten. But our ruin, if we are lost, will be holy of ourselves. We shall reap the fruit of our own choice. We shall find we have lost our own souls. We are responsible for what we do with Jesus and with the salvation that he graciously holds out to us. Jerusalem wouldn't have it. Jerusalem didn't want it. And it reaped the awful consequences. What about you? What will you do with Jesus? Young people, boys and girls, what will you do with Jesus? He is willing to save you no matter how sinful you are. Are you willing to be saved? Do you want his salvation? Have you turned away from yourself, acknowledged your sin and trusted in him? Have you received by faith the gift of forgiveness and everlasting life that he purchased for you by his cross and by his blood? One day every one of us will stand before Jesus. He is the Son of God, the judge of all the earth, the judge of the living and the dead. We will all stand before him. And I sincerely hope that he will not have reason to say to anyone in this room how often I would have gathered you as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, but you would not. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus' lamentation over Jerusalem reveals his deep love for sinners and his willingness to save them, and we are blessed to once again behold him. To see his heart, to see his grace, to be encouraged by it, to rejoice in it. This is our Jesus. 
our Lord, our Saviour, our Shepherd, our King. His lamentation over Jerusalem also reminds us of the sinner's responsibility to receive his salvation by trusting in him. And I hope you have. Come every soul by sin oppressed, there's mercy with the Lord. And he will surely give you rest by trusting in his word. For Jesus shed his precious blood, rich blessings to bestow. Plunge now into the crimson flood that washes white as snow. Only trust him, only trust him. Only trust him now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. Amen.